This is a story about treasure, stolen treasure. It was considered one of the worst episodes of cultural theft in the 20th century. That's reporter Peter Worski. He's been reporting on this decades-long operation where important cultural artifacts were looted and sold. In the middle of all of this was Douglas Latchford, who was instrumental in bringing lots of smuggled antiquities from Cambodia to places around the world and museums around the world. And now we have new details that are reviving the calls to get these artifacts back. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, October 7th. All week, we've been bringing you revelations from the Pandora Papers, our collaboration with the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. These records reveal a secret financial universe that operates just for the uber-wealthy. And today, we're going to talk about this stolen Cambodian treasure, what the Pandora Papers showed about the profits from it, and what action is being taken now in response to this reporting. And we're starting with the story of Douglas Latchford. He was a, he's an Englishman who wound up in Bangkok, became enthralled with these antiquities. I think he, by all accounts, he really he liked the artwork quite a bit himself. He had his own collection. But somewhere along the way, he became involved in dealing with people who were digging up and stealing antiquities and then selling them. Dozens of these artifacts that are linked to Latchford still sit in prominent collections and museums, including the British Museum and the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Yeah, this isn't just about property and getting it back. According to the Cambodians, these are very meaningful objects that, to which they're spiritually attached. And for that reason, they, they believe justice would be served if they got them back. And how did he come to acquire that massive collection of these Khmer antiquities? Well, I mean, what we know now is that he was dealing with people who were looting them, uh, just digging up the, the sites. There was a lot of looting going on f- through the 90s, really, particularly during the unrest in Cambodia, because you had armed groups, mostly uh, there's different opinion of exactly who was doing it, but there's certainly Khmer Rouge was involved in raiding these places. But there were also just desperate villagers who would say, dig up a statue. And he would be in touch with people who were in these villages where these temples were. And he would be getting these emails back and forth from people saying, uh, we have this item. And then they would send a picture. It's covered in dirt. And he would we understand from some of the Cambodians that these pieces would sell for 500 bucks or a water buffalo or whatever. And then they would sell for 10, 20, 100 times more than that once they got to Sotheby's. So was Latchford ever caught? So his downfall started in 2011 when Sotheby's put up for sale a Duryodhana, a statue of Duryodhana. And uh, a French archaeologists noticed something very important about that statue, which is that it fit perfectly into a pedestal left in Cambodia in a temple that had been looted. And authorities were notified. They canceled the sale. It was returned to Cambodia. That was 2011. It took eight years 
but eventually that investigation that started with the Duryodhana led to Latchford's indictment. And then uh, before prosecutors can figure out where all the money and loot is, he dies. And so he is never brought to justice or he's never prosecuted for any of this. Right. He never faces trial. And part of the indictment against him was that the prosecutors were seeking uh, any money from the criminal proceeds from the sales of these antiquities, as well as the antiquities in, themselves. And it put the investigation kind of at a dead end. So what did we learn about Douglas Latchford and about these relics from the Pandora Papers? What we know from the Pandora Papers now is that he set up two trusts with his family in 2011 and 2012 that eventually would contain many of their relics from his collection, as well as hedge funds and bank accounts. In response to the Pandora Papers, his daughter has noted that the money that's in those accounts has come from legitimately earned wealth that the family previously held. They set up the trusts to avoid taxes and not to hide anything. The trusts also have his relics, and she said she is shocked and saddened to learn of her father's role. And so the fact that there are now documents that provide more information about what was happening financially behind the scenes, like how could that affect what happens to Douglas Latchford's money and what happens to these relics? Well, you know, the prosecutors can, though Latchford is dead, they can still go after and seek their return. The question is for a prosecutor seeking their return, they have to prove that they were the fruit of some sort of criminal behavior. And before the Pandora Papers, I don't think we knew that Scanda Trust was Douglas Latchford himself and where it was, how it was organized. And we also didn't know anything about it having hedge funds and these private bank accounts in it. And so what, are the, what does the family actually say about where this money came from, if not from the sale of these relics? Well, Douglas had always said that he had made some money in uh, pharmaceuticals and development. And I, I think this family also says that there was some family wealth that was uh, involved in these uh, accounts as well. And what do the museums say? In response to our reporting, the museums have said that they're doing everything they can to vet the objects in their collections and that they are continuing to look at the items that Douglas Lashford touched that are in their collections and are often in discussions with the Cambodian government. The British Museum has said that a lot of the items in their uh, collection are old. In previous decades, the uh, record keeping was not as rigorous as it is today. Both the Met and the British Museum say that they're doing everything they can to track down the ownership history of these objects and that they're in discussion with the Cambodian government. How do you think what's happening with investigating the antiquities from Douglas Latchford, how do you think that fits into this broader conversation about art acquisition by museums and the requisition of cultural relics? Well, th this has been a ongoing issue for, you know, for decades with museums and they keep issuing guidelines about we should demand ownership history, we should investigate our own collections. And I think that this might get 
some more public pressure to to rectify those uh, that situation. Peter Worski is an investigative business reporter for The Post. Malia Politzer, Delphine Reuter, and Spencer Woodman also contributed reporting. After the break, we'll talk about some of the other actions that are being taken in the U.S. in response to the reporting from the Pandora Papers. You're going to laugh because it will sound so simple, and I think lots of our reactions will be, why the heck hasn't this been done before? We'll be right back. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen. The Pandora Papers investigation really has only been out there for a few days now, but we've seen a huge wave of reaction around the world. In countries from the United Kingdom to Bulgaria to Chile, we've seen governments announce investigations. We've even seen some senior politicians be questioned by police in countries. That's Will Fitzgibbon. He's a senior reporter for the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. You may remember his voice from Monday's episode about South Dakota. And he says that the reaction to the Pandora Papers has been fast and widespread. One of the most important impacts seen so far has been here in the U.S. In the United States, just yesterday, we had a bipartisan group of lawmakers announce the introduction of a new bill called the Enablers Act, which really is pretty revolutionary. For a long, long time, financial crime experts around the world have pointed the finger at the United States and said it's not doing enough to stop dirty money passing through the US. And in particular, they've said that so-called enablers, people like lawyers, real estate agents and trust company employees, don't have enough rules and regulations that require them to weed out potentially suspect clients. And what this Enablers Act does, which, by the way, specifically cited the Pandora Papers investigation, aims to address that and to close those loopholes. And what did they say in announcing this? I mean, what did they find so galling about what they saw from some of the reporting that came out of the Pandora Papers? It was pretty remarkable yesterday. I mean, we're still reporting on the Pandora Papers, and we had these four bipartisan members of Congress literally cite Washington Post and ICIJ investigations as they announced the legislation. In particular, these lawmakers cited the Post and ICIJ revelations about the growing role of trust companies across the United States, and in particular, South Dakota trust companies, where our reporting through the Pandora Papers investigation found that there have been hundreds of trusts set up in the United States, including number tied to individuals and companies overseas who've been seriously accused of bribery, crimes, and human rights abuses. And so this proposed act, like what would it actually do? How would it prevent these quote-unquote enablers? I think we all know that banks for a long time have been dodgy, right? 
Think of some of the biggest financial scandals in recent history and how big banks helped terrorists, criminals, oligarchs, you know, move money around the world freely. That's kind of been addressed for a number of years. I'm not saying banks are doing great, but it's been addressed. This Enablers Act finally focuses on what experts tell me are a huge swathe of industry insiders who really don't have any obligation under US law currently to ask simple questions. For example, If you work at a trust company in South Dakota, or if you're a real estate agent in Manhattan or Washington, D.C., and if someone comes to you looking to make a purchase or to set up a trust, there actually aren't strong federal laws that require you as an American professional to ask a simple question like, hey, that money's not the consequence of any criminal action, is it? You wouldn't do that to me. Hmm. That kind of basic question (laughs) actually isn't a legal requirement currently, and the Enablers Act is going to change that. Oh, wow. Well, so you said that this has bipartisan support. I mean, who are the lawmakers who are supporting this? And what are the chances that this is actually going to become a reality? So as I said, we've got four co-sponsors of the deal. Uh, We've got Tom Malinowski on the Democratic side, who's really been leading this and has spoken about it for a while. Interestingly, I thought on the Republican side, we've got Uh, Maria Salazar, a Republican from Florida, who, yeah, I thought was really interesting, used her personal story as a child of a family from Cuba originally, who really thinks that this bill is important because she knows and has seen firsthand, really, the way in which kleptocrats, dictators and foreigners overseas in the Cuban context in particular have misused the US financial system for their own private gain. But I can imagine that there might also be opposition to this. I mean, these laws, especially the laws in South Dakota, were created for a reason to be able to foster this kind of trust industry. And so who are the people who are likely to kind of put up the red flag and say, maybe this is something that we don't want to do to put more hurdles in the way of people being able to establish trust here? Oh, boy, that is the million dollar question for sure. There's no doubt that lawyers, real estate agents, and trust company employees around this country are going to be freaking out. And we know that they've actually had a successful track record of stonewalling similar proposals in the past. Lawyers and the American Bar Association in particular are incredibly powerful in this country. And they've successfully dissuaded lawmakers in the US from introducing such legislation in the past. I think what I'm hearing from lawmakers and from other experts around the country is that the huge attention that the Pandora Papers investigation has given to this issue of US enablers and the US role in the dirty money industry worldwide might be the straw that breaks the camel's back. Pandora Papers might finally have made it so impossible for the US and even powerful lawyers to ignore that this law might actually have a chance of making it. Hmm. But I'm just trying to understand this opposition more because what this proposed law seems to be asking, I would think is relatively basic, right? That you're asking, look, I just want to make sure that the money that I'm about to be dealing with, that that money isn't from some kind of criminal activity. And I would think that people who are lawyers or the people who manage these trusts or whoever, like, would want to have that kind of cover to say, like, well, I asked and, you know, I don't want to be participating in something that could be a criminal activity. I think it would be wrong for us to characterize, you know, all lawyers across America or all trusts across America sitting there in their offices like Mr. Burns kind of gleefully, you know, uh, tapping their fingers (laughs) together. But 
This is a competitive global industry. <laughs> you know, if the US passes this act, there are plenty of other tax havens in the world that still aren't asking those kind of questions. So I think the pushback that we are going to see in the United States is going to come from industries who say, hang on a minute, this isn't fair. You're going to punish our industries financially and we're going to lose business. Hmm. So this proposed law seems to be one step in the direction of asking for more accountability with these kinds of secret transactions. I'm wondering what else are people calling for now that they've seen the realities of of what is happening behind the scenes? Like what are other things that could be happening, especially here in the U.S., that are not? I think one of the big glaring loopholes that many experts have identified to Debbie Sinzepra and I as we reported on our story about the US trust industry is that the US, unlike many, many countries in the European Union, don't have any requirement for people involved in trusts, known as settlers or beneficiaries, to declare their interests to a central registry. Many of the listeners out there will know that recently the US has passed an act that requires owners of certain anonymous companies, these infamous Delaware companies, for example, to very soon start declaring their ownership of companies. But when it comes to trusts, that's still not the case. So there's a lot of interest among experts and lawmakers to move that conversation forward when it comes to trusts. What are some of the questions that you have going forward after all of this reporting? I've got a lot of questions, Um, but I think one of them would be, what are the states going to do? Uh, You know, we've reported so much on South Dakota, uh, Delaware, Nevada, New Hampshire. When it comes to a lot of this tax stuff, experts tell me that the federal response and power is actually kind of limited, that really states need to be responsive and they need to decide to clean up their own act. And we haven't really heard from many of them yet. And I'm very interested to see where, after these Pandora Papers exposés, people start moving their money. Because we've seen in the past that once a jurisdiction like Panama, like the British Virgin Islands, maybe like the United States, starts getting unwanted attention, then there's always going to be a rump of people who decide, you know what, I still want to use the secretive offshore industry and I'm going to go somewhere else. What that means is, I suppose, that uh, we as reporters will still have a lot more to do in the future. Will Fitzgibbon is a senior reporter for the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. Thanks also to Debbie Sensiper and Greg Miller for their reporting. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Alexis Dio and edited by Maggie Penman. It was mixed by Sean Carter. If you have not heard it yet, Monday's episode of Post Reports is a great place to start to understand the trust industry in the United States and how it's been used by rich and powerful people to hide money, even from their own children. The kind of reporting that we do is only possible because of our subscribers. If that's you, thank you so much. And if not, I hope that you'll consider starting a subscription. Right now, you can try the post for just a dollar a week, which gets you unlimited access to everything we publish. Learn more at WashingtonPost.com slash subscribe. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.